Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. We're going to be talking about fear today, why we need it, ways to tackle it, and how fear and being terrified can push us forward in our lives. You got this. Like, why would you not deserve all the good things? Why would you not deserve the opportunity you were presented? Why would you not want to dream audaciously? I want people to understand, like, here's the thing. You cannot have courage without fear. You being afraid does not make you weak. It does not make you different. It makes you human. And you have the opportunity every single day to choose courage in the moments that you're afraid for the things that are important, for the, even the things that are small. Truth-telling, fear-fighting, it's all a muscle. And you can start practicing it now. We're going to be hearing from Lovey Ajayi Jones in a moment, and she is a fantastic woman. You're going to love this conversation. I just wanted to remind you, first of all, that tickets for our third season of The Big Night In are available, and you can go to irishtimes.com forward slash big night in to get all the details. We're really looking forward to getting our Saturday nights going again from March the 6th, and I'm looking forward to seeing loads of you there. And thank you so much for the response to our storytelling evening, which we have planned for Thursday, March 4th to mark International Women's Day. We have a whole load of brilliant women lined up to talk to you about overcoming challenges in their lives that they have dealt with and faced and overcome. Women like Senator Lynn Ruan and women like Aoife Martin and lots of other great people. So we've had such a huge demand for that and all our tickets are sold out, even though it's a free event. We're going to release more of them soon. So do keep an eye out on our social at IT Women's Podcast on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Thank you also to everyone who sent in submissions to tell a story on the night. We're going to be choosing a couple of them and we'll come back to you soon. So do watch out for that evening of storytelling on March 4th. And we'll be bringing you all those stories as well, obviously, on the podcast on Monday, March 8th, which is International Women's Day. Now, let me introduce you to my guest on this episode. A blogging veteran, Lovey Ajayi Jones, is the voice behind the blog AwesomelyLovey.com, where she covers all things pop culture with razor sharp commentary and wit. Her debut book, I'm Judging You, The Do Batter Manual, was released in September 2016 and was an instant New York Times bestseller. Her new book, Professional Troublemaker, The Fear Fighter Manual, is a book about how to tackle fear and audaciously step into lives, careers and legacies that go beyond what Lovey says are our wildest dreams. She is a fantastic talker and we had a great conversation, which I have to say left me feeling very energised and up for anything. And I hope it does the same to you. And I think we can all need an injection of that at this time. I began by asking Lovey to tell me about being a professional troublemaker, something we might all aspire to be. A professional troublemaker is somebody who's a disruptor for the greater good. They are challengers, they're truth tellers, they're trailblazers. They're people who, even when it is scary, they do what is necessary in the room that they're in and for the world that they live in. Well, you know, at school, I don't know if it was the same for you, but being in trouble was always a bad thing. And you were sent out into the hall or you were put in the corner or you were told to shut up and stop asking annoying questions. I mean, it happened to me a lot in religion class, actually. Um, So we've kind of, as women and as girls, socialized to think that causing trouble or disrupting is not a good thing. Yeah, I think trouble has gotten a bad rap. 
usually the person who gets in trouble is the person that's asking all the questions for clarity. It's the person who's like, hey, I don't know if that actually makes as much sense as we think. They're usually the person who is poking holes and finding the blind spots. And people don't like to be challenged. So then they label it as trouble. But here's the thing is, we have to make trouble in the world. Professional troublemakers are the people who save the rooms, who save the campaigns, who make sure that everybody who is in that space is doing what they should. They're the ones who need to be in the room. And we spend a lot of time silencing troublemakers. And it's to our detriment, you know, when you don't have the person who challenges the idea in the room. That's how a company will get a campaign that now has public backlash. Somebody in the room knew that this was not going to go well, but that person had been silenced or felt like they would be punished. So they were quiet. So we got to spend less time silencing professional troublemakers. We got to celebrate the people who dare to call out what's not okay. The people who were like, hey, let's make sure this is the best work we can do. Celebrate it. Don't punish it. Now, you come from a long line of troublemakers, don't you? So tell us about that, because you you're, you mentioned your Nigerian grandmother, who was a huge influence on you in the book. Yes. So tell us that the sort of almost it was written in the stars that you were going to be a troublemaker yourself. <laughs> <laughs> it was written in the stars. Um, for me, my grandmother, uh, Fumilayo following is who I looked up to growing up and who I still look up to, even though it's been 10 years since she passed. And I think what she taught me was, to, to exist in this world. And one of the things that we love the most is being deeply loved, right? Humans love community. We want to belong. She showed me that you can take up all the space. You can be unapologetic. You can be fierce as a woman. You can take no shit and still be deeply loved. That woman, the same energy that she would use to tell you, you know what, you got to do better. is the same energy that she's used to love on you and make sure you're good. And her life showed me that you can absolutely show up as yourself and take up all the space and people will still love you for it. We spend so much time afraid of, you know, ruffling feathers and rocking the boat that then we end up not honoring who we are. We end up not doing what feels right. We end up swallowing down the big dream that we have because we're afraid of running afoul of somebody or we're afraid of disappointment. And I think for me, my grandmother was somebody who allowed herself to be celebrated without apology. Like she was all heart, all personality. And it really, I didn't realize I was learning so much, but kids watch you and they model what they see, not necessarily what you're saying, but what they see. She basically just showed me that you can do all these things. You can be all these things. You can be authentically yourself and still belong, still have people who love you dearly, still have you know, space in this world still make impact. The first three letters of her name are fun. Was she fun? She was fun. That's hilarious. She absolutely was fun. That woman was hilarious. Like she laughed with her whole face, like her whole body. She would, you would see all her teeth every time that she smiled. Um, She had a good time. She loved to party. She absolutely loved to party. She threw herself the most epic 60th birthday party that lasted days. And she just loved living life. Tell me about your family growing up in Nigeria, your early childhood and, and your, the rest of your family. What was the setup there? Yes, we lived in a big family house uh, with my grandmother. We were, my cousins would come over on holidays. It was an amazing time because, yeah, we were a really loving family, really tight-knit, um, held on really close to each other, deeply religious, we're Christian. And so we would go to church every Sunday. My grandmother prayed every day for three hours when she woke up at 3 a.m. So, yeah, I think for me, my childhood was an affirmation. Mm. And when did you come to America? And how did that happen? When I was, yeah, I came, I, we moved to the U.S. when I was nine. My grandmother stayed in Nigeria, but she would visit twice a year. Like she, she was a world traveler. She, she had no problem jumping on a flight. So she would visit, um, and for me, you know, the U.S. was a culture shock, but kids adapt and very quickly I, I was home. 
And you started off uh, not as a writer, but you're such a fluent writer. Your, your words jump off the page. It's so entertaining and fun. Um, but you started off in marketing and digital strategy. Tell me about making that leap into writing and, and I suppose the journey of taking yourself seriously as a writer, because I know that you struggled with that at the beginning. Yes. Yeah, so growing up, I wanted to be a doctor. That was the dream. I was like every immigrant kid who was like, I want to be a doctor or a lawyer. Um, I thought I was going to be a doctor. I wanted to help people. And uh, I held on to that dream up until college. And I, uh, my freshman year of college, I took chemistry 101 and got the first and last D of my academic career. I instantly was like, you know, I don't even like hospitals, so let's not be a doctor anymore. And I dropped my pre-med major and thought I would go into psychology. My, my college degree is actually in psychology. But the semester that I got that D, I actually started blogging. My friends peer pressured me into starting the blog. And I never stopped. As those friends who even are the reasons why I started blogging, as they quit blogging, I just kept going. But because it was basically my, it was the first time I kind of, I I wrote outside of the classroom. Um, It made me fall in love with it. And because back then, Nobody was creating a career as a blogger. It wasn't, it wasn't like a thing. So the gift of that is that I wrote without apology. I wrote as if nobody was reading because for a bit there, there was nobody reading, but my friends, uh, and I wrote without pretense and it really allowed me to get the practice of saying the truth out loud in public. Um, so when I graduated, from college in 2006, I actually deleted my undergrad blog and started awesomelyloveyou.com, which I still have. And instead of talking about my life, I was talking about the world as I saw it. Um, Randomness, TV, film, race, politics, feminism, whatever it was that was on my heart. And the thing is, because I'm very much of a goofy person and the way I write is the way I talk, people were like, oh my God, this is really funny. So the blog started getting it started getting um, awards. People started really seeing my writing as almost like their conscience because they were like, you're the person who was saying what uh, I was thinking, but I dared not to say. So more and more started reading the blog. Um, In April, 2010, I got laid off my marketing coordinator job. And instead of me being like, ah, that's the universe telling me I got to focus on this writing thing, I really kind of panicked because I was like, um, where are my checks going to come from? So I was looking for other jobs. I was on LinkedIn sending out my resume. But then to make money, I was doing digital strategy for other bloggers and small businesses because that's actually what I was doing for my full time job. So I was like, you know what, while I look for other jobs, I'm going to be doing this thing. But I was still blogging throughout the whole thing. Basically, I never got a chance to get another job. Uh, The blog took on life of its own. And I finally had to admit that I was a writer, that one of my purposes is to make people feel joyful, making them laugh, uh, making them think critically and compelling them to take action that leaves the world better than they found it. And understanding that the power of my words was to shift hearts and minds shifted everything for me. Um, I finally was like, I am a writer, actually. I I definitely am one. And this is what I need to put my focus into. Mm. Early in your career as a writer, um, you were plagiarized, which is a really interesting thing to happen to you. And it also sort of inspired you to write your first book, not this one. Tell us the story of that and, and how that happened. Yeah, you know, it wasn't even early. It was 2014. Um, I have a very singular voice um, in that my audience, they know when I wrote something because I have a very distinct style. So around 2000, yeah, it was August, 2014. I woke up to all these emails from people who were like, Hey, I, I read something that sounds like you, but it doesn't have your name on it. And I was like, Oh, so I clicked the link and it was a, website that was uh, ran by a college and the journalist had actually taken about three paragraphs of my work and dropped it in his without any type of credit. 
So I, of course, livid as I was, I was like, that's not okay. So I went on social and was like, this is ridiculous. And everybody saw it and everybody was like, oh my gosh, yeah, this is ridiculous. This is not okay. And I took a nap. And when I woke up from my nap, I had an email from this journalist who was like, oh my gosh, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to do that. And I was like, you didn't know you were not supposed to plagiarize me. How does that work? Like, I thought that was like the easiest thing we all knew. And I remember tweeting, is there not a limited edition handbook on how not to be terrible at being a human? And the moment I tweeted it, I said, that's the book I need to write. That's my book. And that's how I came up with, I'm judging you, the do better manual. Um, Being able to turn that moment into my first New York Times bestselling book was a gift. I think there were moments when people will give us gifts and we don't realize they're gifts. That was definitely one, but I knew it was a gift. The moment I was like, that's, that's my book. Yeah. And tell us briefly about that book and what was the premise of it. I mean, it's the Do Better Manual. You're basically telling everyone how to live better lives, be better humans, like you were to that person who plagiarized you. Yes. You know, I'm judging you. It's all about how we're all a mess. Humans are trash. (laughs) But we can do more to not be so trash. And I called it I'm judging you because I know people are like, oh, my God, you're saying you're judging. I'm like, yes, yes. We actually all have to admit that we are absolutely judging each other every single day. The problem is that we judge each other on the worst things, what we look like, who we love, what deity we may or may not worship, you know, and instead we should be judging each other on how are you showing up for your fellow human being? How kind are you being? How tolerant are you being of other people's differences? That's why I'm judging us. Okay. That part. Not what we look like, what, how much we weigh or any of those other superficial things. And the book came out and instantly hit the times list. And people were like, this is the book that I want to give everybody I know. And I was like, thank you. That's the book I wanted to write because I want us to be less terrible as humans. <laughs> and was it life changing for you? I mean, was it kind of at a pinch yourself moment, having gone from, you know, just blogging because your friends encouraged you to finally realizing you were a writer? Did it, was it an evolution for you into this new world? Did you feel like, wow, I mean, were you surprised or did you, did it make sense to you that it became so successful? I mean, I never assume I'm going to be a success or I never assumed that my work will connect with people, but I will do the work to make sure they know why it will connect with them. So I put in a lot of, my strategic marketing mind to make sure that book was a success. My community who was deeply engaged, who've been following me. A lot of them have been following me for 10 years and have seen my career. So I have just this community that was like, when you win, we win. And we're going to make sure that you win. And they really showed up for me in a big way, my friends. Um, And it absolutely changed my life. Hitting the times list instantly Um, changed the rooms I had access to, changed how people even engaged with me, changed the opportunities that I was being presented. And a month after I hit the Times, I called my mom and told her that she doesn't have to work again, um, that she could retire. Because I did, because I could now pay her bills and mine. So that was for me one of my biggest dreams of things to do. So that book absolutely transformed my life. And this new book, um, I have to give people the full title of it because it's great. This book is a middle finger up to fear and it's the Mm -hmm. fear fighter manual because that's basically what you're trying to tackle with this one. You say that fear is the enemy and it's, it's what stops us doing things we want to do. So can you tell us a few of the times you were afraid in your life and how you dealt with that and the message you're trying to give with this book? Yeah, you know, I call this book the fear fighter manual Um, because I really realized that a lot of our lives are determined by moments where we are afraid. The decisions we make in those moments transform everything. And I think about my journey. My journey has been a whole bunch of moments where fear has stopped me from doing something that I wanted to do, but also more moments, more importantly, more moments where I've actually not let fear be the first decision factor And each time that I choose courage over fear, I win. Um, And to be a professional troublemaker in this world, you're going to have to do some scary things, say some scary things, be in rooms where 
You're afraid of what your voice means, what your dissent or your challenge could mean. And when we understand that what we need is at the other side of fear, what like that we will always be afraid, but what matters is what we do when we are afraid. So for me, yeah, I've been, the times when I was afraid to call myself a writer because it was such a title that felt so big and felt so different and felt like I would have to do so much to live up to it. You know, my TED talk um, that I did in 2017 that now has 5.6 million views, I turned it down twice because I was afraid that I wasn't ready for it. I was afraid that I couldn't take the stage and kill it in the way I needed to because I didn't have the time. I was afraid that I just couldn't dedicate enough resources and that's energy and time um, to this thing and, and make it come out good. And I, I basically would have not done it had I been allowed to say no. It was because my friends didn't allow me to say no. It's because Pat Mitchell, who curated TED Women that year, did not allow me to say no, that I finally said yes. And when I said that yes and did that talk, that talk is another moment of my career that has transformed everything because the fact that it's been seen by millions of people. I've gotten thousands of notes from all over the world from people who were like, this talk changed my life in some way or shifted my perspective or made me do something I wasn't going to do before. So I think about that, like how many times have we let fear make us say no to yes opportunities that can be transformative? You know, how many times have we been too afraid to do something that we're compelled to do? Um, and, And how often do we opt out of the best case scenario because we're always afraid of this worst case scenario that we've created in our heads. Mm. I mean, you use that to talk about imposter syndrome, because is that what you felt? I love I'm not good enough to go and do this. I can't do this. Is that something you've had in your life? And how would you advise people to sort of get over that imposter syndrome? Yeah, I think imposter syndrome is, is one of those natural things. It's one of those things that just because as you're moving through the world, especially as women, we've been, the world basically tells us we're not good enough. The world is constantly letting us know we're to something and we should doubt all that, those things. So then imposter syndrome is the, brings all of that together. And then we just think whatever the position is that we've been asked to do, whatever the opportunity is, we're not the right ones for it. But I think the best use of imposter syndrome is for you to use it as fuel. You know, if you're feeling imposter syndrome, it can work well for you if you insist that you will always get better at the work that you're doing. You know, I use it to make sure I don't ever think I am perfect or an expert. It is what fuels me to be a forever student. Um, But imposter syndrome should not stop you from doing what is real, from taking up the opportunity, from dreaming big. So in those moments when you're feeling the imposter syndrome, understanding that, okay, so this is just a growth opportunity. One of my friends, Unique, said... When she feels uncomfortable, the worst that can happen is she will grow. And I'm like, yes, you let imposter syndrome fuel you to grow, but don't let it stunt you. If you are running away from growth growth opportunities, it's stunting you. If you're saying no to the promotion because you don't think you're qualified, that's stunting you. If you're saying no to a speaking engagement somebody asks you to do because you don't think you're ready, that's stunting you. So you just have to recognize it. And I think we have to start calling out our fears, acknowledging it. So some of the power is gone from it. And also that vulnerability helps because you'll find out other people are scared too. The only difference is some people are choosing to move past the fear and do whatever it is that they want to do anyway. Yeah. One of the things we should tell listeners is that your TED Talk was about that very thing of feeling uncomfortable and learning to almost love that discomfort and use that discomfort. Mm -hmm. And tell us a little bit about the TED Talk for people who haven't seen it. Yeah, my TED Talk is called Get Comfortable Being Uncomfortable. And it does tackle this idea of of how we run away from things the moment we feel discomfort and how we need to face those fears. And that TED Talk is actually what spurred me to really understand that tackling fear was necessary for my second book. The talk is what did it. Because I remember, like, even the first four words of my talk is, I'm a professional troublemaker. I wanted that to be an anchor and the fear of it all because I realized that fear is a universal problem. But 
because we hear like, be fearless. We think we are weak when we feel afraid. I think fearlessness just means you're not letting fear make you do less. It doesn't mean you're not afraid. It means you're charging forward regardless. And in the talk, I talk about my year of yes, the year of fear fighting that I had when I turned 30 and all the different things I did and how it shifted my life and how those habits pay off years to come. And it was, yeah, for me, when when I saw the response that it got, I was like, okay, let's drill into this fear thing because I started really seeing how much it was a part of everybody's daily lives and how little we were talking about it. Mm. And how we take it for granted. And just, um, we almost think it has to be and that we're kind of wise to give into the fear instead of challenging it. Like that's the way we, we sort of think we have to be. But I mean, and sometimes we need to be afraid. You make a very good point that at the moment with a pandemic raging, that kind of fear is is a good kind of fear. So sometimes we have to obey it. Um, one of the chapters I loved the most in your book was called Be Too Much, because I, I really it really resonated in that, you know, this idea that as women particularly, and I would really like to talk to you about your experience as a black woman, because I think from reading your book and, and other reading other people, it's, a, it's an even bigger thing. Uh, this idea of being too much, walking into a room and you know, trying to tone yourself down for other people. Can you tell us about that, first of all, in terms of your experience as a Black woman? Yeah, being a Black woman, we are considered more aggressive than other women. Just people will take our tone and the way we speak naturally and take offense to it because whatever the projections they want to send our way. Um, And for me, I always want to make sure people understand that, like, that's not my business. What people think of my voice and how I show up is actually not my business in that I am not going to bend myself backwards to make myself more palatable to people. So when people are like, oh my God, too aggressive, too talkative, too opinionated, too political, I'm like, I'll be too, right? Being too whatever it is. Because what people are really trying to tell you is they want you to be less than, but it's easier to say you're too much than to say, I want you to be less than. So I, I think it's really important, um, and, I, and I use myself as a model in hoping that, you know, there, I have hundreds of thousands of people who follow me. A lot of them are white. And I'm like, I need you to see me so you don't then go to work and complain to HR that your Black coworker is being aggressive because she uses her hands a lot or she has more bass in her voice or when she's excited, she's more expressive. That's me. I'm like, that's me. I, I'm, I use my hands a lot. I, I get excited. My voice might go up. And I'm hoping I am a model for people to see that you don't have to understand uh, the person who's next to you. You don't necessarily have to think and communicate in the same way they do. It does not mean their way is less valid. As long as this person isn't cussing at you and yelling at you and demeaning you, how do you consider them aggressive? Like, how are you considering somebody's way of expression aggressive just because it's different from yours? So I'm I'm hoping people read that chapter and see not just themselves in it, but they see that they've actually judged people for being themselves that they have been the person accusing somebody of being too much, too aggressive, too loud, too 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 opinionated. And I hope people stop it because when you stop it, you start understanding, okay, I was wrong here. That's what I just always hope people see themselves in my in my words and adjust something or feel affirmed by something I said. You make a really good point about um, this idea of dialing ourselves down or diluting ourselves a little bit to make ourselves more palatable. It's never going to work because you're probably never going to dial it down enough. So when you might dial yourself down to six or seven, but they'll actually have wanted you to dial yourself down to four. So you're on a loser anyway. So why don't you just dial yourself up to the full max kind of thing? That's what I'm saying. (laughs) I'm like, if you're going to be upset at me, you're going to be upset at me, not my representative. You know, if you're going to be upset at me anyway, I might as well give you a full reason to be. So, and that's the thing is we we can't exist in this world seeking the constant approval of fickle human beings. We can't. It's a losing battle. It is a futile mission. That's why I'm always like, spend less time so concerned about what other people think of you because there's nothing you can do, zero that you can do that will guarantee that everybody you come across is going to like you. Actually, most people are actually most people probably will like you 
But then we're concerned about the three people who don't. You know, 10 people might tell us we did a good job. But what we'll remember are the two people who told us, I hated it. It sucked. What about those two people's words somehow negates the 10? Humans are, we are, we are wired to hone in on the negative, which, but it is, it's an intentional mission to actually say, you know what, I'm not going to give it as much power. Give the 10 people who say they love you power and remove the power from the people who say they don't like you. And my whole thing is if I am who I am, purely who I am, I'm going to repel some people and I am going to attract some. There's no way I can attract and repel everybody if I'm just in this gray world. Like I think people are most connected to people who they think are close to the aligned to them in value and opinion and experience and thought. And then there's going to be other people who completely disagree with you. If you are somebody who has nobody who ever disagrees with you, that means you're saying and being nothing of note. You're just living the gray version of life. And I don't think that's worth it. I'll tell you, the people I'm most attracted to and are, I'm drawn to are the people who I can see are absolutely being themselves. And they mightn't even be aligned to me in, in many ways, but that authenticity or that feeling that someone is living their actual you know, self and their truth is so attractive, I think, and something we're not really um, taught as much as we should be. You know, it should be something that, we, that should be celebrated, like our own uniqueness. I mean, you talk about the fact that you like preppy clothes. You like quite, quite bland, beige, boring clothes. I mean, that's probably a bit, I hope that's not too insulting, but that you, you often dial up the old fashion sense to be more sort of provocative in order to make an impression and to show who you are and to not be afraid of it. Yeah, like I, you know, I talked about that in the fact that, you know, sometimes I'll be asked to wear, if I'm keynoting a conference, the the dress code is business casual. And I have no problem wearing business casual. <laughs> I'm wearing business casual today, randomly, and I'm just on a podcast. <laughs> I enjoy wearing it. But there are times when I'll say, you know what, today I'm going to put on a red hoodie or a red sweatshirt for this business casual keynote because I want people to understand that excellence comes in different packages. Excellence doesn't just look like the button up, doesn't just look like the suit. And people are constantly attaching value to clothes and our physical appearance on the work that we can do. And I'm like, no, whether or not I am in the hoodie, the sweatshirt, or I am in the blazer, I am going to give you the same person. You're going to get the same work. My work is not attached to what I'm wearing. And especially for Black women, we are constantly judged on how we show up. Our hair, people say we don't like when our hair are braids and there are laws that allow people to discriminate against us. And we can be fired if we come wearing a particular hairstyle. And I'm like, how does my hairstyle change the value of the work and my production. I don't understand how that is attached to it. So yes, there are absolutely times when I will go speak at a Fortune 500 or Fortune 50 company where I can absolutely wear my usual button up or the blazer, but I'll be like, nope, nope, today you guys are going to get the casual because whether or not I showed up in fully dressed up or in the sneakers, I'm going to give you excellent work. Hmm. Tell me the story um, about money, because I think your your stuff on money is excellent and knowing your worth, because, again, that's often, I think, something women struggle with, too, saying I, de- I deserve this and this is how much I should be paid. I mean, you got a huge sum for your uh, book, didn't you? I think a six figure sum, which is which is fantastic. And you tell a story about um, Nicki Minaj and some pickles, which I mm-hmm. think is very informative. So tell us that one. I think it's really important for us to not undervalue ourselves and to stand in our worth. And one of the things that I love is when um, Nicki Minaj was doing a photo shoot and she showed up for the photo shoot and the clothes were terrible. And at catering, they just had a jar of pickle juice. And Nicki saw it and left and said, I'm not doing this. And people asked her like, why would you not do it? And she says, because if I had accepted Pickle juice, that's what I would keep getting. Oftentimes people do not want to want us to stand in our worth. They want to devalue us in whatever ways. And we have to do the work of saying, no, I will not accept trash. I will not accept what I know is beneath my worth. I will not accept the constant demeaning of who I am. And for women, it's a big thing in this world. Like, we're not told to negotiate. We're told that if, you know, somebody offers us something, we should be thankful for it and just take it. No, no, we don't need to. 
I never got the messaging that I was supposed to negotiate. Meanwhile, when men are eight, they're already tell, being told you can push everybody else's buttons. You can push the envelope. And I think it's really important for, um, for us to not apologize for the moments when we say, no, I'm worth more than that. My work is worth more than that. I'm going to bring more than that to the table. So I want to be compensated accordingly. It's like that time you were invited to the conference, an international conference, and you discovered that other people were being paid and getting flights paid for that you weren't. How did that pan out? Because it's a really informative story, I think, on the money thing. Yeah. So, yeah, I was asked to speak at a conference, a tech conference in Europe. And uh, they told me they would pay me an exposure. But I found out that they would pay other people by buying their books, paying for their travel. And they wanted me to pay my way there. And I, and I turned it down and I talked about it publicly on, on Twitter and found out that this one, this was part of this conference was good for that. They, they were constantly picking and choosing who they felt was valuable enough to compensate. And I was like, well, I've been speaking for 10 years. I'm, I've been on some grand stages. I am. And this is the realm that I play in. And if I can't be, um, compensated who can then, you know, and seeing the the inequality that was based on like demographic, like they, they paid white men and bought their books. They, you know, um, paid for white women's travels. And then black women who were asked to speak there were asked to just come and as if it was our, a favor that was being done to us. But it started this really big conversation around like pay inequality in tech, especially. Um, the CEO of the conference said, uh, maybe he emailed me and the Forbes writer who actually wrote about this issue and said, maybe I would be able to command my fee if, if it was in a more urban demographic, oh, which was God. some serious racist dog whistle. I'm like, you guys asked me, like I wasn't seeking you out. You came to me and then had the nerve to insult me. Wow. But I'm glad he did it because he doubled down and proved my point even more. Yeah. Um, and it was another moment where I had to recognize that who I said I was in public had to also be who I was in private and vice versa, because I could have been quiet and not spoken up about it. I, I was afraid that I would take a financial hit that, you know, people will see it and say, oh, my God, Levy is a troublemaker. We're not going to have her come. But I again, I realized that my power as a speaker who's been at it for a long time is that I had to be the one to speak up. I had to be the one to be the troublemaker. Um, it wasn't the person who, it's not the person who just started their speaking career last week who had the power to do this. You know, it wasn't the person who hadn't, at that, at that point, I hadn't done my TED Talk yet, but yeah, I, I had nine years of speaking under my belt. So I had to step up and say, even if I was to face the financial um, repercussions of speaking up, I'd be able to handle it. You know, I had a savings account. I have other gifts that I can use. Marketing and communications is still one of my gifts. So that whole thing about us not opting out of the best case scenario because we're afraid of the worst case scenario became really valid then. And speaking up was amazing because other people were able to now speak up and the conference was able to get, they basically were held accountable publicly in a way where they had to answer to it, uh, in a way that let it let it be shown that we won't be silent in the times we're being cheated. Cause I really do think, like I said, in my Ted talk, like systems depend on our silence to maintain the status quo. They depend on us on our shame, on our guilt, on our fear. But when we don't give those things power, we start to win. Yeah. Well, speaking of systems, um, something, another story of the, of the last year, as well as the pandemic in America, has been the race issue and Black Lives Matter. And I was wondering how hopeful you are, because obviously it's a long, long, long struggle and it continues. But does this feel like a more hopeful time to you? I think right now, like George Floyd's death and in, in last summer was so dope because it agitated people. It made people take to the streets, not just people who are Black. I think for me, I'm hoping that more people stay agitated so they are more compelled to act, right? What last summer did and with George Floyd's death did was 
it it made people physically uncomfortable and they wanted to take to the streets. They wanted to block the highways to say, this is not okay. How do we maintain that agitation? How do we let people know it's not just in the moments when somebody is killed on camera by a cop that racism is in effect. It's in the moments when you get your house appraised and it comes in as $50,000 less because the appraiser is white and he sees you, this Black person in this house, and instantly assigns a lower value. That happened to me this year. As the George Floyd thing was happening, same time, I got my house reappraised. The appraiser is an older white man. He walks in, he sees me. And I, and I think that day I probably had on sweats, but whether or not I had on sweats, my house is still my house with all the upgrades and all this square footage. He spent 10 minutes and walked away. Two days later, we got the appraisal and he had appraised this place for $50,000 less than anything comparative in the neighborhood, anything comparative next door. And I was like, whoa, and had to wait three other months, got it reappraised. That person walks in, Black man. He spent 30 minutes looking over the whole place, walks out and gives us the correct appraisal. So when we talk about this type of a moment and we talk about what the hope is, I want people to understand that they have to be able to look beyond the footage of somebody with, their, with, with, with a knee in their neck you know, racism is a full system that affects and permeates everything. And when we talk about power and privilege, a lot of my my friends who are white never have to worry about, should I be at home when my home is being appraised? Because it might become a lower number. You know, should I put pictures of my kids on the walls if I'm about to show up, show my home because I want to sell it? Will those pictures now have somebody say, you know what, I can't make an offer on this house? And that's the thing that people never realize. It's part of this massive system that we live in. And it's going to take white people being committed to shifting it. It's yeah. not our job to fix it. Because if we could have fixed it, we would have been fixed it. <laughs> we would have done it by now if we could have. And we can't, you can't, you can't like fix something. It's like, it's like walking into a house you don't own. You don't have the keys. So you can't even get in. So I'm like, the people with the keys got to fix it. Do you know a writer called Emma Dabry? She grew up in Dublin. She's based in London. She, her next book, uh, she wrote a book called Don't Touch My Hair, which I think you'd be mm. really interested in. And her next book is called What White People Can Do Next. Do you mm-hmm. have thoughts on that? Because as, as someone who has a big white following as well, and I know lots of friends who are white, what are the kinds of things that you're saying in terms of, you just said it there, I suppose, that white people need to, to sort it out, really? Yeah, I think that's, I think white people should talk to other white people. And that, you know, and... Because again, like the problems that exist, it's like asking women to fix the patriarchy. We like we can't. We we're not the ones who set up the system. We're not the ones who have the power to pull down that system. Black people can't be the one to fix racism and whatever the the systems of injustices are that where we are the minorities of it. We cannot be the ones to fix it. It always takes the person who's on the opposing side who actually has the power to fix it. I'm Christian, for example. Um, Islamophobia is up to me to fix, people who are Christian to fix, right? Because we have to be the ones who know that we are the system, we're part of the people who are benefiting from it. And I think it's enough time for us to start, to stop passing the buck. We're constantly waiting on other people to save the day when I'm like, you're waiting on Superman when you also have a red cape. So that's that has to stop. That has to stop. We always, we have to stop passing the buck. It is all of our business, what happens in this world. And the systems that are not just, the systems that are not fair, it's our jobs to fix it. You have a great bit in the book where you talk about why everyone should have a Nigerian friend. I really loved it. So can you tell people what it is, um, why they should go out and find a Nigerian friend, how cool they are, what the what the vibe is for people who don't yes, have Nigerian friends? I think Nigerians friends. are just culturally boisterous people. We hype you up. You know, we are the, we are natural professional troublemakers. <laughs> Because that's just how we were raised and we're fun. Uh, you need a Nigerian friend in your life. We make your life better. You know, our food is spicy, is is energetic. Everything that we do is loud and big. Our, our weddings are big. My, my wedding was, I had two weddings in one day. 
we just have a good time. We we are definitely additions to your life. And I think Nigerians are everywhere too. So it's not hard to find a Nigerian friend, but that chapter was fun for me to write because I was just like, you know what? Part of your fear fighting is when you have a Nigerian friend, we're going to push you to do stuff that feels bigger than you just because that's what we think is, that's the way to move. Oh, well, lovely. I hope you'll be my uh, Nigerian friend anyway from afar. Uh, we can, yes. we can say that. <laughs> um, what I was going to ask you was you said you've said that you wanted to write. And I think the same with, could be said for your first book. You wanted to write a book that you needed, that you wanted to read, that you would learn from as much as anybody else. What have you learned about yourself and about fear from writing the Fear Fighter Manual? Yeah, no, I, I am constantly creating work that I want to consume, knowing that if I want it or if I need it, somebody else wants and needs it too. And for me, this book, even the process of writing the, this book was an affirmation. This book, I knew I needed to write it because I was like, this is the book I needed when I was afraid to call myself a writer. This is the book that I needed when I was about to turn down this TED Talk for the third time. You know, this is the book that I needed that I still need in the moments when I'm like, oh my God, my dream is so big. Should I do it? And I think that's the power in it is that even I want to revisit my words to remind myself about these things, about to give myself permission to dream audaciously, to be this person. Um, I think about how this is the book that I wish I had when I, when I uh, wanted to be a doctor or thought I did. Right. I wish this was the book that I had after college when I'm like, what am I going to do next? You know, um, and for me, this book is the best thing I've done yet. And that's why, like, I even set an audacious goal for this book because I was like, all right, this book is about fear fighting. Let's make it big. So my goal is to help a million people fight their fears. I want a million people to do something they typically wouldn't do because they would be too afraid. I want a million people to ask for the raise they weren't going to ask for before because they thought the answer would be no and they were afraid of that answer. I want a million people to add some crazy dream to their to their wish list that they're like, oh, how am I going to do this? I don't even know where to start. I want, like, what would happen in the world if a million people insisted that being troublemakers was good as long as what they're tr making trouble about is going to make somebody else's life better? That would shift a lot of things. So that's my audacious goal to help a million people fight their fear. And that sounds like a good goal. I'm sure you're you're nearly there or halfway there anyway, probably, because it sold quite a lot, the book, I think, so far, has it? Are you on the New York Times list again? Well, my book comes out March 2nd. Ah, okay. So, so I will find out. Yeah, well, we need to get uh, loads of people here to buy it as well. Um, And just who should read it then, Lovie? Like, who do you think would most benefit? So if there's people listening and they're troublemakers themselves and they want to encourage more troublemakers, what kind of people should buy the book? Mm, I think you should buy this book if you are somebody who is afraid of saying or doing the thing that feels different in a room because this book will give you permission to do it. You should buy this book if you have a massive dream, but you're like, I think I'm too silly to even think that's possible. You should buy this book if you're usually the person in the room who is saying or, or doing the hard thing and you want to see that reflected because you're not by yourself. You should buy this book if you're a person who understands that you've spent a lot of time choosing fear over courage and you want to stop doing that today. Buy this book for your young girl who needs to hear this message that she, she should exist in this world fully as herself without apology. Buy this book for her because I want her to hear this messaging early because imagine how our lives would be if we could be the audacious Nigerian grandmother before we turn 65. If we could take up space unapologetically before we turn 60, you know, we don't have to wait to be that large, that unapologetic about who we are. We don't have to wait till we are older. We can start that now. Yeah. Along the way, you've met a lot of um, impressive people and you're obviously a very impressive person yourself. Who are your own uh, professional troublemakers that you look up to that inspire you? I know you're friends with Glennon Doyle and I loved her book, Untamed. I absolutely loved it. Who I look up to? Oh my gosh. I look up to so many people. I am constantly finding muses around me. My friend Bozma St. John, who's CMO of Netflix, for sure, Glennon Doyle, who's an international bestseller. My mother, you know, my friends who are not on anybody's 
new anybody's bestseller list. Um, I am, yeah, I'm just always inspired by women who insist that they will show up without apology and who cheer on other women. I suppose the inauguration, um, Biden's inauguration, must have been a great day for you as it was for many of us here who were so relieved. And to see Amanda Gorman up there shining so brightly and beautifully, is she someone that you're a fan of? I love her work. She's so young yet so prolific already. Like, it's it's amazing. It is, it is so inspiring. And was that a good day for you, the end of Trump and the, this new era that hopefully is going to be? Absolutely. I am. Oh, my God, I was geeked. I was like, oh, my God, it's so good to get him out the office because he was digging us into bigger ditches. Before you go, uh, Lovey, just give us one more final uh, firefighter sort of uh, manifesto thing, something inspiring for anybody at the moment listening who's worried about something, who's afraid to step in and, say, and speak up about something but needs some encouragement. What would you say? you got this. Like, why would you not deserve all the good things? Why would you not deserve the opportunity you were presented? Why would you not want to dream audaciously? I want people to understand, like, here's the thing. You cannot have courage without fear. You being afraid does not make you weak. It does not make you different. It makes you human. And you have the opportunity every single day to choose courage in the moments that you're afraid, for the things that are important, for the, even the things that are small, truth-telling, fear-fighting, it's all a muscle. And you can start practicing it now. Brilliant. Well, Lovey, I'm so glad you came on the podcast. And uh, I hope we can talk to you again for your next amazing best-selling book. Thank you. Thank are you so you, much for having me. Are you writing me. it now? Or have you got a ne- new one in the pipeline? No, I got a, this one hasn't even come out yet. I'm going to let this one breathe first. Good idea. Well, listen, take care. It was lovely, lovely to talk to you, I have to say. Nice talking to you. That was lovely Ajayi Jones there. And her brilliant book is called Professional Troublemaker, The Fear Fighter Manual. And I hope our conversation might have helped you fight some fears that you're grappling with at the moment. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, by Suzanne Brennan and by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Mind yourselves, make some trouble, fight your fears, and I'll talk to you next time. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com